Welcome to episode 84 of Breakout Culture. I'm Ed Vasey, none other than the culture editor of Country and Townhouse magazine. And I'm Charlotte Metcalf. I'm the associate editor at Country and Townhouse. And this is our last podcast before our summer break. So we thought we'd look back over the year and bring you some of the most fun highlights. Over the last year, we've covered culture from television, cinema and photography to sculpture, art, books, music, dance, history and festivals. We've been honoured to host an array of wonderful guests who have informed us, entertained us, made us think and often made us laugh. And in the world of art alone, we've covered major exhibitions from the summer exhibition at the Royal Academy to Hogarth at Tate and reported on the revamp of both the Courtauld and the Wallace Collection. We've talked to curators of exhibitions from around the country like Duncan Grant at Charleston and Rossetti at the Holborn in Bath. We've reported from Hastings Contemporary, Birmingham's Barber Institute, Compton Verney and the Yorkshire Sculpture Park. Yes, and we've covered fairs from the African Art Fair to Start Art and the Affordable Art Fair. We've talked to some amazing artists, to Alexandra de Kuna about his work at the new Battersea Tube Station, to Julia Peyton-Jones, who headed up the Serpentine for many years, about her new book to celebrate her daughter, and to Chris Levine, famous for his portrait of the Queen with her eyes shut, about his installation at Houghton Hall. In March, we talked to the extraordinarily resilient Tracy Emin about her work and her centre in Margate support artists. Here she is talking with searing honesty about her new paintings and her battle with cancer. And the show's called uh, A Journey to Death. It was, it was A Journey to Death, and Carl said, no, surely you're wrong, it's A Journey from Death. So I changed it to A Journey from Death, but I felt that it was wrong. It had to be to death. So now I've changed it back now to A Journey to Death. Oh, out of interest, why did you think it was wrong? Because we're all going to die. Oh, okay. no, <laughs> no, only, you know, we're all going in the same direction. We're all we're all going there. And also, I thought journey from death, even though it's sort of like optimistic and everything, it sounds like like yeah, I survived the mountain. I swam through the river. You know, I got through the desert. I survived my journey from death. And it wasn't like that. It was like, you know, I think almost every day I feel like I'm on a journey to death, to be honest, you know. And I don't mean that in a negative way. I just mean like that as the truth. You've said that in terms of fighting cancer, you've never wanted to live so more. Oh, how can I explain it without sounding moody? Right. So what happens is you you think you're going to die. You're told that you possibly are going to die. You might die, that you're possibly not going to be around at Christmas. And so you so you think, right, I accept all that. And then, wow, you, you fight it all and you make it through and you are around at Christmas and then you're around the next Christmas, which is brilliant. And then you realise that life continues. Life is still a struggle. Life is still difficult. So you can have this high, this amazing high of surviving and living and getting through this awful thing. But then you have to confront life. In February, while the astonishing exhibition of Francis Bacon's work, Man and Beast, was on at the Royal Academy, we talked to James Birch, gallery owner, friend of Charlotte, author of Bacon in Moscow, about his lifelong friendship with Francis Bacon. Here's James describing Bacon's studio. It's more like a, looking at a skip than um, a studio. <laughs> it's just rags and bits of paper and everything all over the place. Extraordinary. Extraordinary. And I mean, the second thing about Bacon, of course, is, is uh, as a notoriously heavy drinker around Soho. Well, the story thing was I had a gallery which was about... Uh, well, it was sort of underneath, about two doors down from the economy room, the notorious drinking club. 
And so Francis would sometimes just pop into the gallery in the afternoon and say, oh, do, you want, do you fancy a drink? And um, off we'd go upstairs to the Conley room, and whereupon there'd be endless amounts of champagne. And um, then somebody would say, oh, I'm bored here, let's go somewhere else. So we went to the Groucho Club, which was, again, about two, two doors down. And then you had the French house. And that was sort of, in those days, rather kind of not so busy as it is now, and, and good fun. And was there a sort of order you had to do them in? Like sort of a starter, main course and dessert? That's absolutely true, because, <laughs> because with pubs in those days, they were only open from, what was it, 11 till 3, and then they closed till 5 o'clock or 5.30. So that would start off with the French house, and then move, but then the Conley Room opened up at 3 o'clock, so went to the Conley Room, and that closed at 11 o'clock, and went on to the Groucho Club, which closed at 1 o'clock. Back in October last year, we were thrilled to have the legendary artist Patrick Hughes with us on his birthday. Happy birthday. Why on earth are you spending it with us? <laughs> it's because I love the hang-up gallery and I'll do anything for them. Thanks for wishing me a happy birthday. 82 years and counting. Patrick, it's a massive honour to have you on the podcast with us because I'm going to say, I'm going to use this terrible phrase which will probably put your back up, but you're a cultural <laughs> icon. You're a cultural <laughs> icon ever since you fled Hull aged 17 and came to Mayfair. You've been in the Chelsea <laughs> Arts Club, you've been in the Colony Room, you've been in New York, you've been in Hackney, you've famously yeah. called the East End Shoxton and Hordich. You've basically <laughs> lived the swinging 60s, the 70s, the 80s. Just start talking, tell us what it was like in the 60s, particularly when you started making your name? Some of it was your mother, Ed, with Marina. Oh, well, you better not talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I was, um, I was, as you say, I wanted to put it in a, another plug. I was at the Chelsea Hotel, so I was the Chelsea girl. I left the Chelsea Arts Club to move to the Chelsea Hotel and went, and having lived in the Chelsea Arts Club to some extent, I went and lived in the Chelsea Hotel in New York for three or four years. I don't, I, um, since I was there, I don't really remember what it was like. It was, uh, <laughs> it, it was a, a special time. Yeah, I have, I have lived different lives, I suppose, since I'm so old, you're bound to live different lives. I've lived a life in St. Ives on Porthmere Beach. I've lived a life now in, uh, as you say, in Shoreditch and Hoxton. Uh, I've lived a, a variety of lives. I've lived... In a way, I began my life in a in a miserable way because that uh, that the life with my mother and father was very unpleasant and dull. And since then, I've tried to make it interesting and fun, shall we say, or intellectually stimulating. I was one of those families that didn't have any books at home and didn't have any real life at home. They didn't like people to come in the house, and so I lived in a way through the radio as we're doing now and but more in books i suppose i'm books are a little door that left me out of the terrible trite world the, the suburban uh, lower middle class world that i lived in into another world uh, like lewis carroll through books i got out of the world i was in and into 
this world I'm in now, you know, my, my own world. When it comes to books, we've covered literary festivals from Hay and Cheltenham to Clifton and Petworth and talked to some of Britain's leading and prize-winning authors. Last November, we talked to the magnificent novelist Rose Tremaine about her new novel Lily, set in Victorian times and reminiscent of a Wilkie Collins thriller. The story revolves around Lily, a little girl torn away from her kind foster family and shoved back into Coram Foundling Home, a brutal place for unwanted children, which still exists as a museum in London's Brunswick Square. Here's Rose talking about Lily and the fictional foster family she created. I mean, the foster family that I've created in this book is 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 a is a kindly and extremely generous. Although um, they were not not at all a rich family, they were they were very generous with Lily. But they were nevertheless paid to take her for yes. for. for the five years, and then, um, yes, the rules were that she was given back one day to the next, and uh, when Nellie, her foster mother, comes to with her back to Coram to give her, to give her in again, she takes home a baby boy, yes, which is heartbreaking, just absolutely heartbreaking mm. for everybody. Um, mm. But were all the foster families as lovely as the family that I've um, invented here? Probably not. No. Um, by no means. So, yeah, I mean, imagine, I mean, you and I both have, have children and, and I mean, imagine, you know, that happening aged five or six to, to one of our kids or, in my case, grandchildren. You know, it's just a terrible, terrible thought. I, I mean, ki- unkindness to children just sort of makes me so angry. It makes me, a lot of things make me angry in the modern world, but that makes me just about the most angry of anything. In October, our guest was the poet and author Ben Ockrey, who won the Booker Prize for his novel, The Famished Road. He talked to us about his beautifully illustrated children's book, Every Leaf a Hallelujah. And here he is explaining what inspired the book and poetically convincing Charlotte and me to look at trees in an entirely new light. For most of my life, I've been wanting to write this book without knowing it. And I've been aware of the, of the of deforestation uh, since I was a child, because I grew up, you know, in Lagos and in and, 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 and in the south and in the east. And when I was growing up, the forests were rich. The forests were real forests. I mean, the forests had personality. They had presence. You could you could sense them for miles and miles around. And in the years of my growing up, you just began to feel and see gaps. You heard them every day chopping down the trees. Every day you heard the, the whir of their, of their engines as the trees came falling down. Every day you heard these big giant irokos, these, these, these wonderful baobabs. You could hear them groan as they fell. And you could hear when they fell, they crashed on the other trees. And the other trees, it, it, was, it was one of the tragic sounds of my, of, 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 of my childhood. And this, was hap- this has been happening for years and years. And... The thick forests that were there uh, are now empty spaces, and many of them are now villages, and and and, and many of them are now dry places. Um, it's 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 a kind of quiet tragedy. I mean, at the same time, other people in other parts of Lagos are are planting trees, but the the loss of the forest that I grew up with is is, is too profound and too too painful to even begin to speak of. It's 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 almost irreversible. 
Well, that, that sort of brings me on to my next question, really, which is, you know, what I really loved about this book is that though it's it's slim, you know, it packs so much in, and it, it, it's been compared to Charlie Mackis's bestseller, The Boy, The Mole, The Fox and The Horse. But I think it's far more profound than that, as it's um, based on such a huge amount of knowledge about trees and deforestation. And it reminded me a bit of a condensed version of that brilliant Pulitzer Prize winning The Overstory by Richard Powers, which is, you know, I learned so much about trees talking to each other and everything, which which is very much at the centre of this book. Um, you know, I feel you could have written, you know, 10 trilogies about trees, but uh, so I'm really interested to know why you, such a huge and important subject, you've chosen to write a, a, a children's book to tackle it. For me, it's just a song to the heart. It's a story kind of addressed to the heart of everybody who's ever had a feeling for the magic of trees. I, mm. I, I, I love trees. I love trees. Trees are very special very special beings. I think trees anchor us uh, to, 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 to the earth. I think, I think trees, I mean, I say this often, trees are the only living things in nature, the only things that maintain that profound connection between the earth and the sun. They, they, their roots go deep into the earth, deep into the magic and the mystery of the earth. And the earth itself is a wonderful, wonderful uh, being and, 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 and mass because it is made of stardust. It's made of the, 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 ele the elements of other stars. It's not just Earth. It's, it's universe. It's celestial. The trees plant their roots deep into it. Their trunks is right where we are, where we walk around on the planet. And their leaves and their branches up into the heavens and draw nourishment and wonder from the sun. No other being, no other form, not mountains, not seas, not rivers, not human beings, not animals, nothing else quite has that extraordinary connection between the earth below and the, and, 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 and the sun. At the end of November, we talked to the legendary Barbara Taylor Bradford. At 88, as resilient as ever, and on a visit from her home in New York to London to promote her new book, A Man of Honour. She began writing it while her beloved husband of many decades, the film producer Robert Bradford, was dying. Here she is explaining to us how she came up with the idea to write a prequel to her global bestseller, A Woman of Substance. Well, I was sitting with Bob in the hospital and I knew that I, I, I'd be made to understand that he'd had this massive stroke and probably would not change from being in this very deep sleep, I, that he would never speak to me again. But that day, as I sat there, I thought, he's not going to live and how am I going to be able to write another book ever? And how am I going to be able to write this book that's due in the Falconer series, uh, which requires a great deal of research? And I knew I couldn't do it. I knew I was going to be devastated. And I had a sudden thought as I sat there, and it was this. I wish I could write a book about somebody I knew, a character I knew. I'd wish I could write about Emma Hart. That would be so easy to do another book about her. And then I thought, no, you can't do that. You've written seven. <laughs> and, and then I thought, but I didn't write much about Blackie. It was always there in the book. It was always in her life. He was her best friend, never a lover, always her pal. They shared many ambitions and dreams. They were very like in many ways. But I don't really 
know about him. I didn't really tell you anything about his private life, the reader. And so when I got home that night from the hospital, I picked up a woman of substance and went through it. And we did see him a lot. And he was always with her. And I thought there's a whole book about Blackie and I couldn't think it out then because I was concerned about Bob. But six months later, after a lot of grief and being unable to write anything or do anything, I knew I better start writing because he'd always said, you must keep your job, you must keep your career if anything happens to me first. So I sat down and I wrote an outline, which I always have to do. I had days when I was not so good, but somehow I wrote the book and it really helped me. He, he was right. It kept me busy and it gave me a lot of solace, you know. And I wrote the book in hand. It was entirely written no. by pen. No. How long did it take you? It took me about uh, 18 months to write. I, I found it was difficult to type on this typewriter I have because the paper was far away. So I just sat down with a calligraphy pen on white paper and wrote it. A week later, we talked to another Booker Prize winner, Bernadine Evaristo, who just worked with Penguin to relaunch and bring back to the fore six forgotten books by brilliant black writers, including A Black Boy at Eton by Dilibi Onoyama, and Sequins for a Ragged Hem by Amaral Johnson. Here she is on sparkling form discussing the culture wars with us. I find it really worrying, actually, that some elements of our society are so reactionary. I mean, the whole point of history is that we should interrogate it. We need to revisit it from our 21st century perspective. And so that means sometimes we need to, to, to place a different kind of value Odd work. It's the same with the sculpture, sculptor, isn't it? Eric Gill, for example. When mm, I when mm, I look at mm. uh, when I look at those um, statues outside Broadcasting House, they look like the work of a paedophile now. Sorry to say, but they do. Uh, it's really shocking. Mm. And so, um, and people say, well, you should divorce the art from the artist. But actually, in this case, I think because you we we know the history of the man. It's very hard to divorce the art from the artist. I think we should always have these conversations and we need to keep these conversations alive. I'm all for the Colston statue and similar statues not being around. I am all for them being in museums and um, recontextualized in museums. I don't think that is dishonoring our history. I think that is investigating history and finding a new way to create a national identity. And I think it's, it's ridiculous to think that our national identity is somehow being damaged by the fact that we are choosing to reevaluate how history has been made and portrayed in the past. I, I fear for our society because we just seem to be so divided at the moment in so many ways and it's not helped by certain leading figures stoking the flames. On Valentine's Day this year, we had a very funny and enjoyable time talking to Claudia Rubenstein. She runs Jewish Book Week and to the lyricist Don Black, who was taking part in the Jewish Book Week because he had a surprise hit with his book, The Sanest Guy in the Room, which was largely about his love for his adored late wife, Shirley. Here he is discussing how he met her. We, we met, uh, I, I'm from Hackney and she was from Clapton, come from very humble uh, beginnings. I met her at a party, uh, at, a, at a, a club rather. We met that night 
And she said, I was going to stay in and wash my hair that night. <laughs> but I decided to go to this club. And throughout our 60 years, whenever we had, you know, a little few words, she used to say, I should have stayed in and washed my hair. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. The conversation got funnier and funnier. Here we all are chatting about Jewish characteristics. My mother's Jewish and my, my Jewish grandfather used to drive my Christian dad absolutely mad because you couldn't go to a restaurant and order without him insisting on tasting everybody else's food. <laughs> I mean, what, what, why does food feature so prominently in Jewish culture, do you think? I think it's a very easy way of showing love. It's a very easy yes. way of, of hoping that your children are safe, that uh, if there have been bad times in the community, it's it's something that you can do. You can give your kid a sandwich and know that they look better, they look fed and, and happy, maybe. But maybe it's similar to, uh, to, to, to Italian communities and Greek communities and Arab communities that we all want to, we want to show our hospitality by feeding you. I'll I tell you another thing, apart from food, that I've noticed this last few years, that Jewish people are very good uh, about talking about illnesses. <laughs> yes, Ill Ill illnesses is uh, unbelievable. Since I, I've been out with a few <laughs> women on dates, but I wouldn't call them dates, but with women, and it doesn't take long before you start talking about blood thinners <laughs> and, and, hip, and hip replacements, especially when you get to a certain age, you know, there's a, a, a kind of a sob in their throat. How are you doing? Are you all right? <laughs> it's it, you know, it's very legendary. You, you're relating to this, aren't you? Gordon? You're absolutely right, Don. And when someone gets out their little black book and it's full of doctors rather than <laughs> oh yes, <laughs> men or women, then yes, no, you no. know that you've arrived. They're sharing their specialist with you. Yeah, That's I don't so know. True. I'm not sure. I'm, I can't be only Jewish, but Jewish people they seem to dwell on it. You know. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> Yeah, anyway. Be right. And finally, here's Don on working with Barbara Streisand. Absolutely priceless. Who's the most amazing performer that you've worked with who's really, you think, has really carried your songs magnificently? Someone you may have heard of, Barbara Streisand. Oh, I, was gonna say, I was hoping you were going to talk about mm -hmm. Barbara Streisand. Yeah. Well, the reason, first of all, her voice, I think, is the voice of the century. You know, yeah. The, gener the generation. Right? Uh, but she's such an ordinary person. When you what? see her, yeah, when you well, when you see her at home, I went to her house in Bel Air because she sang a couple of songs from Sunset Boulevard, the show I did with Andrew, and she wanted to change a few lyrics, so I went over to the house to figure it out, and it was like being with my sister. <laughs> you know, do, you want, do you want a cup of tea? Do you want this? I've just been to the dentist. Oh, you done pain, the pain, the pain of it. It was just like, I thought, is, it, is this Barbara Streisand? It can't be, you know. And uh, no, she's just so normal. But when she sings, of course, yeah. you, run out, you run out of goosebumps. Listeners will know that we love the theatre. We've been lucky enough to see a lot of it this year. Cabaret with Eddie Redmayne and Jesse Buckley. Straight Line Crazy with Ralph Fiennes. Here's the great playwright Sir David Hare, who wrote Straight Line Crazy in May this year talking about the demise of the avant-garde. I had a very, very rough time with the critics in the first 10 years of my life. And it was a very adversarial relationship. And uh, they, they seemed to be threatening my livelihood. In other words, it seemed, it seemed to me very, very, very unlikely I could survive. And uh, fortunately, I had a wonderful producer in Peter Hall. And when he put plenty on, the board wanted to take the play off. 
and said to Peter, you can't go on running plenty because it's had such bad reviews. And Peter said, well, I don't understand what the subsidized theater is for. But if, if we put on work which we believe is good, but the, the critics or the public don't, um, surely that is the point of subsidized theater. I haven't heard anyone express that view for 30 or 40 years now. In other words, I'm afraid subsidized theater has become box office crazy. But the, the idea now of an avant-garde is almost gone. And this is making for some very dull theater. It's making for theater which tells you what you already believe and you go out confirmed in what it is you believe. But the, we all uh, of my generation, believe, we, we all saw failure, you know, waiting for Godot had been badly received, look back in anger had been badly received, the birthday party had been catastrophically received, saved had been appallingly received. So that all the plays we most respected and admired, it was almost a mark, you know, failure was a, was, a, was a mark of integrity. It was a mark of authenticity and it was a mark of excellence. But expressing that point of view now in the 21st century, the culture has changed completely. What was the charge, what was the charge against you by the critics? What did they not like about David Hare's plays in the 70s? Oh, you know, the, the theatre was fun and was meant to be a place of entertainment. Uh, you know, <laughs> there was a wonderful moment when Bernard Levin, who was my chief prosecutor. Oh, was he? And he was on my, he was on my case for 20 years. And, and, and he just was after me. And he, he, he eventually said, which I was very, very happy with, he said, um, David Hare's plays, are of no more value than Francis Bacon's paintings. And he said, and I don't expect them to live any longer than Francis Bacon's paintings. And I thought, well, that is a judgment I'm very, very happy with. I'll, I'll settle for that. Last October, we talked to actor Nathaniel Parker about playing Henry VIII in Hilary Mantel's The Mirror and the Light alongside Ben Miles, who played Thomas Cromwell. Here's what he had to say about working with the legendary Hilary. You know, she's, she, she's just adorable, Hilary, um, as a person. She's so, uh, she, she, she's so absolutely there and generous to us as a cast. And she will say things to me like, you know, I, I, when I'm writing the book, if I can't hear your voice saying it, it doesn't go in. You know, so there's a certain amount which has actually been written for us, um, and and that's been that's been joyous. Um, but I yeah, wasn't thought about that that you've done the play, the first two plays, while yeah, she she's now writing got pictures. the third book, and there's yeah. this incredible interaction between how the play has now influenced the book. Yes, absolutely, and it's I mean, working with Ben, of course, for the play. She's written around Ben completely. Ben, there's no words there that wouldn't come out of Ben's mouth because that's what, you know, they've been created there. Um, but there is an interesting phenomenon that a couple of people, audience members have said to me, which is um, around one or two different bits, which is, that's not what they did in the book. <laughs> actually, you really miss it. And I'm going, okay, this is not a normal adaptation by somebody else. This is an adaptation by Hillary. And Hillary has put it in the play that way round. So mm. suck it up, basically. <laughs> if you don't like it, you don't like it. Cool. But it's, you know, it's, it's a real joy. And having Hillary there, it's a bit like having Oscar Wilde in the room if you're rehearsing importance. You know, the, the depth of knowledge that she has, the understanding of characters and atmosphere, 
It's just phenomenal. In February, we had a wonderful conversation with Nick Allett, who spent 40-odd years with Cameron McIntosh running the organisation for 20. Here he is talking about Hugh Jackman. (laughs) Hugh Jackman is probably one of the most charming, delightful individuals. And and you you say you would say that. Hugh, we brought Hugh over from Australia in the mid-90s to do uh, Oklahoma at the National Theatre. And we brought him over to play Curly in Oklahoma. And I don't know if you ever saw that. You were probably too young, Ed. You were in short trousers still. But it was the most extraordinary performance of a really great production. He he went on to become one of the world's biggest movie stars. But in the times that I've seen him since, and, you know, he doesn't live in this country, so we don't see him that much, he's never anything but charming. The first night of Farinelli and the King in New York, um, I'm sitting there, Broadway opening, blah, 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 blah. And I see across the room, there's Hugh Jackman sitting sort of quietly on his own. And I went, oh, I'll go up and talk to him. And um, I go up and uh, grab him and go, um, Hugh. And he went, oh, hi, mate. How are you? You know, Nick, nice to see you. It's been a while. I said, yeah, it has. And at that moment, two, how shall I describe them? Tall, thin young gentlemen who like show tunes um, sitting behind us, <laughs> tapped us, tapped us on the shoulder and said, uh, excuse me, would you mind? And handed us... Um, the, uh, the, their iPhone camera, and he went, oh, sorry, mate, yeah, I'll be ready, you know, started to pose for a selfie. And the, he went, no, would you mind taking a picture of us? And handed Hugh Jackman <laughs> the camera to take a picture of these two guys sitting at their first Broadway first night. <laughs> and here he is telling us about why Elaine Page took over from Judy Dench in Cats. If you remember, poor Judy Dench, um, the goddess uh, Judy Dench, ruptured her Achilles tendon in the rehearsal for Cats. And the role that she was. I didn't, uh, the idea of Judy Dench in Cats has slightly blown you my mind. You must know that story. No. Oh my God, no. Judy, Judy was playing the role of Grisabella, and the famous story she was rehearsing, and they're all rehearsing in some cold, drafty rehearsal studio in South London. And suddenly, there was something that sounded like a pistol shot. Literally, people spun round, and there was a scream. And Judy's Judy's Achilles had rolled up the back of her leg. Just snapped oh, my God! I, ah, I, I, there you I, go. I, I, oh, so, oh. so um, she was, you know, she was went to hospital and sent up and strapped up and put in plaster, and the role was kept open for her. And on the first day of my employment on that show, because I was theatre manager, I got a call from the stage door going, "Mr. Allen, uh, Judy's arrived for her re- rehearsal. Could you come and help her?" I thought, "Oh my God! You know, this is so exciting." my first day of working in London theatre and I'm going to go and rescue Judy Dench. So I went and collected her and the set to Cats, a whole series of ramps going up it. And she said, will you help me up the ramp? And I said, yes, of course. So she took my arm and we walked up very slowly with a crutch and we got halfway up and she said, okay, I think I'm okay now. Let me go. And I did. And she fell off. She fell off the ramp, crash sideways. And I thought, oh my God. Day one, and I've killed a national treasure. This is going to be the shortest job I've ever had in my life. But fortunately, she didn't blame me. But she did sit in a heap and say, look, I'm very sad to say I'm, I'm not going to be able to do this. And, you know, we were four days off um, our first performance. So they got Elaine Page, who hadn't really done anything since Evita. And um, I remember uh, her, this figure walking in. She had a reputation, Elaine. She was the reputation of being a bit of a diva then. And sitting next to her, and I said, um, hi, how do you do? Um, I'm Nick Hallett. And she said, hello, I'm Elaine Page. 
And I said, um, are you okay? And she looked at me and she said, no, I'm absolutely bloody terrified. Last November, we talked to the brilliant director, Kwame Kwe Ama, artistic director of The Young Vic, about working with the playwright, James Graham, on his play, The Best of Enemies. James's play is brilliant. That's number one. Um, and I say that not as the artistic director, but as a rather envious playwright. When I got the gig at the, at the Young Vic, actually, within about three days, I was doing a panel. And James was on that panel. And, uh, and he and I were talking. I was like, James, I've got the gig. You know, what would you like to write? And he said, I don't know. And I said, listen, do you know the movie Best of Enemies? And he was like, oh, my God, it's one of my favourite. And I went, should we do it? Should we adapt it as a play? And he was just like, yeah. And he was having a similar conversation with Jeremy Heron, actually, at Headlong, which is our co-producers. So uh, off he went and he started writing. And, and that was like three years ago. And here we are now with this piece that is really about the birth of punditry. It's really about, and in essence, the story is that William F. Buckley to the right and Gore Vidal to the left are kind of marshaled together to have a conversation about the Republican and the Democrat Democratic uh, conventions. And it had never been done before, because normally the, the big networks just kind of put on the camera when it starts and switches it off when it ends. But here, because ABC was so broke, they went, why don't we have two very intelligent people speak about what's going on? And actually what unfolds is this almost cultural war battle that happens between two extremely intelligent, but two extremely um, hot-headed and, 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 and yeah, hot-headed and, and kind of invested people. So it's, it's pretty brilliant. It flashes back to Britain. There's moments of Enoch Powell. There's moments of Tariq Ali. There's moments of James Baldwin. I mean, it, it, it's like this brilliant kaleidoscope of that hot moment at the back end of the 60s when the world changed. And Kwame went on to tell us why he made the inspired decision to stage Oklahoma at the Young Vic. Yeah, th thank you for that. I'm really excited about Oklahoma. And I'm excited because um, I went to see it um, in New York in, I, th I think, 2019. And I walked into the theatre quite weary. I was like, Oklahoma, yeah, I know what the sticker says right now. This is a kind of reinterpretation of it. But how do you reinterpret Oklahoma? And the magnificent director, Daniel Fish, and his company did just that. It was a window into the frontier uh, mentality of America at that moment and that time. And again, I go to metaphor. It is a, a wonderful metaphor for, uh, I think, us in the West in particular, but not exclusively, how we are kind of re... Not refining, we're, we're getting smaller, in my humble opinion. We're moving closer into our and sticking within our own circles and our own echo chambers. And we are creating our own mythologies. And, um, and, and I think Oklahoma does a wonderful deep dive into that. And whatever happens, we know the music is magnificent. Mm. But it's like a remix on the music. Not a single word has been changed, just the lens. And that's what really good art does. It says, I can look at this classic piece and I can turn it around simply by contextualising it. We've also talked quite a bit about history on this podcast. Earlier this summer, we had Dr. Neil Wilkin from the British Museum telling us about the phenomenal Stonehenge exhibition. And we covered the Chalk Valley History Festival. Throughout the year, we've talked to lots of brilliant historians like the multiple award-winning biographer and historian Andrew Roberts. Here he is talking about his book on George III and the King's marriage to Queen Charlotte. 
And he was also very uxorious. He was married to one woman, Queen Charlotte. He had 15 children. And um, Queen Charlotte is obviously now, now a massively important figure in our lives because of Bridgerton. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yes, yes, she was... Uh, she was not the lady, I'm sorry to, to break your heart here, Ed, but she was not the lady <laughs> that you see in Bridgerton. She was a rather demure um, character. It's quite an extraordinary love story, really, because they got married six hours after they met. No. And, yeah, and um, which obviously, you know, even for the 18th century is a, is a pretty tight schedule there. Um, <laughs> and uh, it was taken for granted that he would have mistresses like his, um, like the whole of the rest of his family. He's the only Hanoverian monarch who, who was faithful to his wife but instead he fell in love with his wife and um it was only when he he went mad um for the penultimate time in 1804 that uh, they they were no longer able to sleep together well yeah they How had amazing. massive um cultural legacy didn't they i mean the royal academy all sorts of things completely extra yeah fantastic and they very much did this together the royal academy as you mentioned uh, was set up by George III. Um, the Royal Collection, half of the Queen's paintings, the largest art collection in private hands in the world, uh, was bought by him. The British Library, of course, when you go to that wonderful uh, oh, yes. um, five-storey um, glass thing in the middle of the, the nucleus of the British Library, it's, it's George III's library. The Science Museum, if you go up on the second floor of the Science Museum, you'll see part of the largest, the world's largest collection of scientific instruments, which he set up. He was fascinated by science. He, the planet Uranus was named after him. And, uh, he, of course, architecture, the Georgian architects, the great architects like Sloan and and um, Wyatt and Adam and Chambers, all of these people were patronised by him. Uh, and he was also fascinated by and loved music. And Handel said that, that well, that boy lives, uh, my uh, music will never go unplayed. So he was a, he was a great guy when it came to culture. Really was. In the run up to Christmas last year, we talked to A.N. Wilson about his delightful book, The King and the Christmas Tree. And he explained how the tradition of the Trafalgar Square Christmas tree came about thanks to the King of Norway during the war. Here he is talking to us about King Harkon's essential qualities and comparing him to the Queen and King George V. It's clear that you really admire that self effacement and, and modesty. And I'm interested in, 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 in what makes you think he's such an ideal person constitutional monarch it, you know is modesty an essential part of that do you think i do i think the reason the last 70 years have been a success in great britain for constitutional monarchy is that the queen has that quality she's modest she doesn't show off she, she there's no cult of personality around her she learned all that from her grandparents george v and queen mary there's a wonderful new book you've plugged my book so i'll just plug this there's a wonderful new biography of george v coming out before Christmas by Jane Ridley, who's a friend of mine, but an excellent writer, uh, not just plugging. It's had, it's had rave reviews, hasn't it? It's a terrific book. And um, it brings out the ordinariness of King George. He was a perfectly ordinary person. If you'd met him and didn't know he was the King of England, you'd have just thought he was a funny old naval officer, country squire. Uh, you might even have thought he was boring and thick, which he was a little bit of both. But the point is, he was modest enough to, to realise he had inherited a constitution which was parliamentary democracy. These things managed to use the crown and the traditions of having uh, ceremonial uh, and, and royalty, not as the way uh, Louis XIV, one of these sort of tyrants in Catholic Europe, would have, would have used them, uh, as a way of 
bossing other people about, but, uh, but of enshrining the wishes and freedoms of their people. We've also hugely enjoyed talking about music and dance on the podcast throughout the year. For Valentine's Day, we talked to Marcellino Sambe about what it was like to dance the role of Romeo in Kevin McMillan's ballet. Here he is explaining how he sees the differences between national ballet cultures. It's, I feel like I always say that we are all different uh, gems. So like uh, uh, here, I think we are diamonds in, in, in Paris emeralds and Russia uh, rubies. Everybody, uh, we're all somehow special in their own way. I was very attracted to the English ballet because the English style of ballet, because of choreographers like Frederick Ashton, Kenneth Macmillan, people that really, they were the mavericks of ballet. They really pushed what ballet could be like these Roman Juliettes. It's unbelievable comparing to the original versions that were made in Russia. It's it's so visceral. It's so human. Uh, we stand parallel. I I could the way that I act on stage is the way that I would act if I was falling in love with someone across the room in a club. You know, it's like super super real. But then on the other side, you go to Russia and you see a physicality, a technique that is just so pure. The bodies are so long. I mean, the dancers look like three meters tall, and you know they they jump. They and they float in the air. They are so light. There is this amazing um, style rooted on character dancing, on character folk. There's a folk element to their dancing. And then if you go across to Paris, then you see this, this exact exactement. This this very like clean. Um, there's a, a slight air of arrogance that is very alluring. There's an allure to it in a way. Like the dancers never give you everything. There's like a barrier that is like very appealing. So it's, it's, I feel like there's always something positive in every element and there's no better or worse. I hate comparing arts. It's like, how can you quantify if someone is better than the other? I feel like as a, in the future, hopefully if I can lead a company or be part of a, a, a team that leads a company, I really want to, to make sure that people really truly understand that you cannot compare uh, Picasso to Degas. It's complete different worlds and uh, brains and they brought bring something so special to 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 the world, but in their own voices. And I think ballet dancers and ballet styles and ballet companies and choreographers all should have their space to shine in their own way. In the run up to Christmas, Matthew Bourne, who's been hailed as Britain's most popular and successful choreographer, was on the podcast to tell us about The Midnight Bell, inspired by the novels of Patrick Hamilton. And here he is talking about his version of Nutcracker. When we created the piece 30 years ago, it was a commission from Opera North. Basically, they came to me because there were so many classical versions around. So they asked someone who they thought would do something different. And at, at that time, I was running a company with six dancers doing sort of quirky little pieces touring around the country. It wasn't something I would have really thought to do, you know, Nutcracker, not with six dancers. Um, so it was a sort of surprise to me to be offered that. And, but also, in a way, it sort of changed my life because I don't think I'd be around now if it wasn't for it. Because uh, Swan Lake came sort of two or three years after that as a direct result of that, in a way. It's set in a Victorian orphanage and all the adults in the piece play children, mostly, apart from the, the people who run the orphanage. And so it's, it's sort of, a, it it's, gives you very much a sense of going from a black and white monotone world into this crazy world of Sweetie Land in the second half. It sort of explodes like a almost Wizard of Oz-like actually arriving in Oz, I would say. It's, it's, it's maybe not as deep as some of the pieces I do now, or The Midnight Bell, but it's an <laughs> incredible amount of fun, um, which is kind of what we all need at Christmas and particularly at the moment. So we're excited to be bringing it back. Nutcracker was your breakthrough piece. 
And yes. you, every time you see it, you must think I'm looking at the young Matthew Bourne. <laughs> it is like that. Ed. <laughs> it is. I I encounter myself again, thinking, what on earth, you know, was I thinking <laughs> at that time? So ballets are just like a piece of classical music in the sense that Matthew mm. Bourne's Nutcracker, Matthew Bourne's Swan Lake, will be performed all over the world, won't they? Um, no. <laughs> not really. no. Well, uh, well, not not at the moment. I mean. Um, we do but in tour. Theory. We do tour around. We theory. In we do theory, tour around. It doesn't have to be performed by Matthew Bourne's company. <laughs> yeah, the pieces are only performed by my company. They're not multiplied. Oh. You know, they ne- we never oh. multiply them so that there are many productions of Swan Lake happening. Why is that? Because nobody likes them, or because it's just your no. artistic <laughs> OCD control? It's it is that to some extent it's control, but it's I always wanted to feel there was a suggestion some years ago that Swan Lake had several productions going on different places in the world. So it became like a show, like a West End show that would be happening on Broadway and whatever. And I just felt it was always should always be the company, my company that performs it. So it always feels special and it always feels like it's you're getting the real thing. When it comes to music, we've covered just about everything from the Oxford Leader Festival to jazz. We've hugely enjoyed hearing from jazz legend Ray Gelato earlier this year about his life and being a regular fixture at Ronnie Scott's. And here is the soprano Anush Havanesian when she was playing Violetta in Richard Eyre's La Traviata for the Royal Opera House, telling us about her Armenian heritage and why Armenia produces so many opera singers. Who knew? Funnily enough, I have to say that this season, the Royal Opera House has four Armenians, five, five Armenians performing with the company. No. So in Traviata only... No way. Yes, in Traviata only, you've got four Armenians. So Alfredo Libaritavetisian who is opening tonight with the most wonderful, incredible sensation, Lisette Oropesa. Uh, he is also my Alfredo. The other cast includes Violetta, who is Kristina Mkhitaryan, uh, a Russian of Armenian descent. And then later on in spring, we have Rachui Basens, who is also coming to sing Violetta, and she's also Armenian. And then later on after that, we have Liana Harutunian singing Madame Butterfly. So, you know, it's an infestation of Armenians and um, having in mind... Cons- what, is it, what, is it, what is in the water in Armenia? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. You know, it's not only Armenia, the region, the, also Georgia, we have the regional voices are most sensational, really. There is something about it. It's either us being on highlands or maybe the sun or I don't know what it is, but we like singing. And Armenian and Georgian <laughs> singing traditions are very different to each other. I don't know if ever, you've ever been to Georgia and heard their polyphonic choral singing. It's something to to blow your mind away. But uh, the voices that are coming from that region are very distinct. And um, you can always recognize that the timbre, it, it has a very specific color to it. Um, I grew up in Armenia. I was born and raised there. Armenia has only less than three million people living in the country, which is maybe my my borough in London or half of my borough in London. <laughs> um, I studied at the State Conservatory and then I came to, grad, uh, to continue my education in Scotland. I've graduated from the Royal Conservatory of Scotland. Then after graduation, I came down straight to London to be a member of the Yeti Parker Young Artist Programme 
at the Royal Opera House. And since then, I was based in London and uh, started my international career from here. Of course, discussing music would not be complete without an overview from Dylan Jones, the polymath, columnist, author, broadcaster and multiple award-winning editor of GQ for around three decades. He's an extremely knowledgeable commentator on music and culture. So to finish our roundup, here's Dylan talking about David Bowie. He was one of these people that, on the one hand, was interested as, as well as interesting and went out of his way to charm you. And I think that on the one hand, he had, a, he had a genuine curiosity and he would ask everybody he met what was going on, whether you were a makeup artist or a journalist or a politician, or perhaps not a politician. Um, <laughs> uh, but on the other hand, he had an innate way uh, in the same way that, that um, Paul Smith does, that George Martin did, of, of talking to you and making you feel that you are the most important person in the room. And he was, he loved a dirty joke and he was, he could be, he could be quite laddie when, when he chose to be. But two stories, he, what, what was David Bowie like? When he did the extraordinary black and white tour, uh, the Isola tour, I think it was 78, 79, very, very um, sort of Germanic um, uh, staging. And the set was so long, uh, that it had an interval and what would happen during the interval and he, he was playing very dark versions of his current material and very dark version of his popular material and he would go into his dressing room and he would stand up and he'd put a foot on a sofa and he would watch television and what he would watch on television is, is VHS tapes of Coronation Street because <laughs> he wanted something he he wanted to to, to sort of um uh, 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 sort of relax in a way that was using a completely different part of his brain. And he would, he would watch this for 20 minutes and then go back on stage again. However, like all bold-faced names, he had a, he had a huge ego. Um, he was enormous fun to be with, but I remember once going to New York, it was 1995, I think. He, he was just about to release a not very good album called Earthling. It's the one where he appears on the cover with his back towards you and he's wearing an Alistair McQueen Union Jack frock coat. So we meet in this recording studio in Midtown Manhattan. And one of the last things you ever want to do as a journalist is be with the artist when the artist is playing you their new product. Because all you really have to do is sit there and find a variety of, of, of adjectives to describe how amazing this thing is, because in their mind, obviously, uh, they've never done anything better. Uh, and this is the very peak of their creativity. So he starts off, he plays the first song and, it, and it's pretty good. Then I chip in with, God, that's incredible and wow, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I've got all these superlatives. And the second one, pretty much the same, third one. But by sort of track four, the quality is beginning to dip. And I wasn't a young man at the time, but in my naivety, I actually really thought that he cared what I thought about this. And of course, I started being honest with him, which didn't really go down so well. So by sort of track six, I'm going, well, it's all right, but it's not really as good as the one at the beginning, is it? And oh. of course, that, it's not what he wanted to hear. It's not what anyone wants to hear. All they want to hear is, wow, thank you. So that brings us to the end of our annual roundup. And with that, a big and genuine Wow, thank you to our listeners who stayed the course and been with us for over two years. We'll be back after the summer, so do please come back then.
It is amazing to think of the people we've talked to in the last two years. And I hope these extracts bring home to you just what uh, wonderful conversations we've been able to have. Anyway, we're back in September. On the 11th of September, our guest will be the director of the Victorian Albert Museum, Tristram Hunt. Meanwhile, if there are any snippets you've heard today that have made you want to listen to more, you can find every single episode on countryandtownhouse.com and on all the usual podcast channels. Finally, we'd like to thank our sponsors last year, Martin Millis Gin and Coots. And again, a huge thank you to our listeners who've kept us going. Have a wonderful summer and see you in September. Goodbye. Goodbye.